Some of the most valuable conversations in business are also the toughest ones to have. Our guest is director of the American Negotiation Institute, host of the world's most popular negotiation podcast, and a TEDx star. He's here to help us all navigate difficult conversations about race and other timely issues. It's Kwame Christian on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. Most people and most teams are far more confident in the value of what they offer than in the messaging behind it, the actual words, stories, visuals, and questions to bring into those conversations. The cruel irony is that the more you know, and the more passionate that you are about what you have to offer, the more frustrating and limiting the problem becomes. The good news is that you don't need special knowledge or personality traits to close that gap. It is a manageable business issue. That's what we address on this podcast and what I consult and speak about, what I wrote about in my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find that in paperback, Kindle, and audio versions wherever great business books are sold. You can also find a free sample on my website, jimcard.com. Chances are your everyday business message needs some adjustment in this new environment. So let's examine some options together. I have a number of message leadership and growth programs, which I deliver virtually and in person so that you and everyone around your business can be consistently effective in their new customer conversations. Now, if you're a veteran message manager listener, then you know this is the point where I often talk about why I invited a particular guest onto the podcast. I have not yet met Kwame Christian in person. Of course, then again, Kwame, during the pandemic, that's not exactly an anomaly, uh, but I was made aware of him and his work by a mutual friend and a former podcast guest here, Brian Ahern. It did not take long to be impressed. Kwame Christian is a best-selling author and speaker is director of the American Negotiation Institute, and is also host of Negotiate Anything, the world's most popular negotiation podcast. Kwame also serves as an adjunct professor for Audubon University's MBA program, as well as the Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law in the top-ranked dispute resolution program in the country. Kwame has a terrific TEDx talk called Finding Confidence in Conflict, and his guiding statement is compelling. The best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. Things got even more interesting a couple of months ago. Kwame hosted a virtual town hall on how to have difficult conversations about race. I'll let Kwame give you the backstory, but as I understand, he expected a few dozen people, maybe a few hundred to show up. And I think as it turns out, about uh, 7.3 gazillion people did. And uh, Kwame, you've become an even bigger deal on LinkedIn as well. So let's open the door to some of the most difficult conversations inside and outside of our businesses these days. Kwame Christian, it is an honor to have you join us on the Manager Message podcast. Hey, Jim, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
you have an interesting story and uh, and a great background. And just as a start on how uh, what you're doing now and how you came to be having these conversations these days, as I understand it, now your role now is your teacher and a consultant speaker around business negotiation. I believe you began as a civil rights attorney, but got a bit burned out from it. Is that right? Yeah. So coming straight out of law school, I, I did some civil rights work focusing on health equity and criminal justice. But like you said, it was emotionally exhausting, just taxing to have to deal with the the, the most difficult parts of American society and focus on those things entirely for my career. And after a while of, of feeling that exhaustion and then recognizing that, hey, I haven't solved racism yet. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gaining ground maybe? I, I, I will see. I hope so. But uh, I, I said, let's let's move on to something else. And I've always been interested in, uh, in conflict resolution. My undergrad degree is in psychology. And the way that I teach it really focuses on that aspect, understanding not only the psychological barriers that are on the other side, but also within yourself. Uh, the, the first negotiation you have to have is internal. So helping people to find confidence in conflict in, in that regard has been really, really rewarding. So transitioning to business law, doing mediation, and then starting the American Negotiation Institute. Now I've, I've been uh, doing that for a few years and I'm really enjoying it. It's interesting, the psychology of this, and that might be a good place to begin. The discussions we have with ourselves as well as with others. And just knowing what some of the roadblocks and the blind spots might be. As I think this through, it would seem that particularly in the conversations about race, but a lot of the other areas of negotiation and conflict is there are at least two powerful psychological forces going on. One is confirmation bias, right? So then that's pretty, that's pretty common. So if we believe something about somebody or somebody's or some entity, we tend to find the confirming information about it, the thing that reinforces what we believe and tend to ignore the things that don't fit the pattern that exists in our mind. The other one that I, th I think I see, Kwame, a lot is attribution errors. There's the fundamental attribution error in psychology, and we tend to ascribe our own behavior. You know, we, we take into account our good intentions. We know that we're good people and we're trying to do the right thing, but we don't necessarily make the same attributions to the other person. Between confirmation bias, attribution errors, and other psychological casseroles that exist in our, our head, Kwame, what do you tend to see as the forces, the psychological forces that tend to be at work? Yeah, those are those are big. Those are very big, especially as it relates to our interpretation of what other people's are people are saying or doing. But even even on a more fundamental level or a more base level. I think there's a lot of fear involved, fear of the unknown. We can see risks very clearly, especially as it relates to difficult conversations about race. We are programmed in many ways to focus on the negative because that's what has traditionally kept us alive. It's a survival mechanism. But the problem is now, uh, oftentimes, that same mechanism that kept us alive is keeping us from having these incredibly difficult and important conversations that we need to have. And so one of the things I always tell people 
is that it doesn't make sense to give recipes to people who are afraid to get in the kitchen. If you can't <laughs> overcome those fears, it doesn't make sense for me to tell you all of these negotiation strategies and tactics because you just won't do it. And so that's why with the, the TED Talk and with the book, both of them are titled Finding Confidence in Conflict because that, that is priority number one. And then once you get that foundation of confidence, then we can build upon uh, that with some with some negotiation strategies. And the the one that I like the most is called the compassionate curiosity framework. It's very broadly applicable. And then from there, we can build some uh, higher level negotiation techniques. Well, then let's go from from that standpoint. And I do very much appreciate, as we do have on this program, a uh, real sense of let's make things simple and let's make them actionable, give people some tools and some confidence to go forward. So confidence in conflict and these these things that will make us scared. And as I've, I have a, a good friend who's a therapist who's actually been on this program before, and he says, look, there's one kind of fear. It's the fear that you will hurt me or that I will be hurt. So getting past that this com- and into compassionate curiosity, what are the steps that you see, Kwame, that we should be thinking through and trying to push ourselves to act through? Yeah, so the steps of the compassionate curiosity framework are first, acknowledging and validating emotions, and then second, getting curious with compassion, and then third, joint problem solving. And the thing that I like the most about the framework is that it helps you to win not only the external negotiation, but also the internal negotiation. It's a tool of self-reflection and introspection, and the same three steps apply. You deal in lots of different kinds of negotiation, I would imagine, person to person, entity to entity. So there'll be different flavors and different variations in this theme. So let's maybe take something that is common these days when we talk about race conversations inside an organization and how the organization presents itself to the outside world. Where would be that first step? acknowledging and validating emotions. What does that tend to look like these days? Yeah. So when it comes to those difficult conversations about race, these conversations are almost always emotionally charged to a certain extent because we are looking at it in terms of identity. It's it's not just something that we like to do or something like this. It's uh, it's a it goes deep to our our core identity, who we are. It also has to do with how we see the world and the di- the discrepancy between where the world currently is and what we believe it can and should be. And so people have different perspectives on that. And of course, that's going to bring about some emotions. I think that's to be in- anticipated. And so what we need to do first is once we see the specter of an emotion that could potentially be problematic, we need to stop and acknowledge that emotion. And we do that by labeling. So we'll say things like, it sounds like or it seems like. So, for example, we could say, it sounds like that really had an impact on you. Or it seems like it's really important for you to make sure that when it comes to applications, we are maintaining a very high standard for the people that we bring into the company, right? We're acknowledging how the person is feeling. And we can say then with the validation, we're all we're saying is that makes sense. Given your perspective, given your experience, it makes sense that you feel this way. And the cool thing about acknowledgement is that you can acknowledge without agreeing. We're not saying anything that we're, we're not saying that we're agreeing. We're not conceding any points. We're just recognizing, hey, 
I can empathize with you. I see how you feel. I understand that. And just by simply letting the other person know that you understand them, it helps to lessen the emotional uh, barrier that you're experiencing in the conversation. And, and again, to be clear, you're not ever saying we label people. You're saying we label emotion and we give, we offer other people the chance to make sure we align on the word and what they're experiencing and their perspective as a way to move some of this away from our, our amygdala and let, let a little higher order thinking maybe come into play. 100%. And that's the thing. Uh, emotions are, are usually temporary, right? So they're going to be there for a moment and you can help the other person to overcome them by acknowledging the emotions. And the reason why labeling emotions is so powerful is because, like you said, we're dealing with an, an amygdala hijack. Their limbic system is activated and so they're not thinking very clearly at that moment. But in order for the person to either accept or reject the label that you've given them, they have to think logically about it. The structure of the brain that does that logical thinking about labeling of emotions is in the frontal lobe. And so just processing it in that way tends to make people calm down. That's just the way the, the psychology works. So the, you, know, you said the next step, once we have got some level of, we demonstrate a little bit of empathy, we've built our understanding of where we are, the snapshot at the moment, then you say, let's get curious with compassion. That sounds like getting curious is asking questions mm -hmm. and trying to move that forward. What do you find to be the right things to keep in mind at that step? Yeah. So when we're getting curious with compassion, what we need to recognize is that it's not enough to ask great questions. It's also important to do it in a way where you don't sound like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and we, our message manager listeners are not jerks of course but uh, but it would be easy to come across that way wouldn't it exactly and here's the thing when you're in one of these difficult conversations it's more likely for the things that you say to be interpreted incorrectly and that negativity be, to be read into what you're saying so it's very important to be mindful of your tone so you don't get the person in a, uh, an amygdala hijack all over again because you don't want them to interpret the question that you're asking as a threat, because then you need to go through <laughs> the first step of the process all over again. So it's important to maintain that compassionate tone and start to build that trust so they feel safe enough in the conversation to be transparent and vulnerable and give you the information you need to be successful in the conversation. Okay. And the third and final step that you recommend is joint problem solving. And boy, problem solving can be It'd be pretty wide in terms of what that might look like. So what is that process? First of all, what is that process, especially within a, a race conversation in the workplace? What does that tend to look like? Especially in the workplace, it's important to remember that we are literally on the same team. <laughs> we have yeah. to work with these people over and over again. And ultimately, we should be operating in a way that we're more or less moving in the same direction. We're just trying to figure out the best way to get to that ultimate goal. And so before we even have the conversation, we have to have a negotiation about the goals, figure out to make sure that we are moving in the right direction. But assuming you've gotten to that point during the conversation, we want to approach this collaboratively. And so we ask those great questions in the last in the last section and now we're inviting them to the problem solving process where we give some suggestions, they give some suggestions and then we work together to make our suggestions better. And at its best this should seem like a brainstorming session. 
And the thing that's really powerful about this framework is that it not only can it be used at work and at home with your family, with your friends, and within these high, really highly emotional conversations, but it's also that it helps you to know what to say and when to say it. Because at this stage of the conversation, it's still possible that they might feel emotional Again, you might be at a place of emotional stability for a long period of time, and then something is said that triggers the other side. And then you recognize that emotion and you say, oh, okay, I see an emotion. It's time to acknowledge and validate that emotion. Great. And so I'm going to do that until the emotion goes away, or at least I can move forward with a conversation productively, and then you could move, progress during the conversation. So it helps you to get a little bit of structure when it comes to these conversations that could be unsettling, scary, or very, very difficult. Kwame, you mentioned a few moments ago, your early stage of your career that unfortunately you were not able to solve racism. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was a disappointment. You set the bar really high there. But just thinking through in terms of problem solving and what outcomes of these individual conversations can be. And I think to business conversations more generally, especially when we're thinking through selling conversations that we have to customers and prospects in the outside world, when we're having, say, coaching conversations internally, sometimes a good outcome is simply setting up the next conversation. Do you see a, a continuum of good outcomes when it comes to difficult conversations like this one? Like what, what can success be even in a granular sense along the way? Oh, this is a great question, Jim. And here's the thing. I, this is a concept I call micro-negotiations, where we recognize the limitation of, of our persuasion abilities given the time constraints. A lot of times we're trying to accomplish a lot in a short period of time. And what we need to do is we need to recognize what a win is in this conversation. What is the most I can practically accomplish in this interaction? And now my strategy is going to be directing me toward that outcome. And then I'm going to take this little win, and then I'm going to get a commitment for a subsequent conversation, and then I'm going to try and get a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And I think it's really important to, to have that realistic perspective. It's like uh, what, what they say about eating an elephant. First of all, I don't know about you, Jim, but I've never eaten an elephant, but I've heard. It's, it's lunchtime as we record this, but I'm not that hungry. Come on. Yeah, not that hungry. Don't we have some other things, maybe some cereal in the pantry we can talk about? Always, always. <laughs> But they say, what's the best way to eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. You can't try to eat the whole thing. And sometimes people try to eat the whole thing and they get frustrated and they say, why can't I do this? I'm like, well, just the way that your jaw and stomach are designed is going to be impossible <laughs> for you to accomplish that best. And when we bring it to this converse, these difficult conversations, well, the way that time and the psychology of the mind are, are designed is going to be impossible for you to try to get what you want to get out of this conversation in its entirety. And so we have to recognize that through our preparation beforehand and then make the necessary strategic and tactical uh, adjustments for the conversation. Kwame, there are so many things I'd love to get your opinion on as part of this conversation. But here, here's one, and we won't get to all of them, but this is, is such an interesting area. Certainly the timeliness of this on the race conversation, but all sorts of as you say, challenging, difficult conversations that are there. I'm, I'm thinking through what your guidance for business organizational leaders when it comes to the environment from having 
especially the race conversation these days. And there are lots of roles, good and bad, I would suspect that leaders can take. One of them is that they would enable these conversations to be to happen, create the right environment, create the right encouragement, but not try to impose themselves on it too much. There, there's a modeling role. I'm going to, as a leader, uh, whether you're the CEO or you're a first level manager, but I, I have a leadership role, I'm going to model the behavior, and try, even though it may be a bit imperfect. There are also those who can force this on their colleagues and basically saying, I'm telling you, you've got to do this, this. And I would imagine a lot of people would recoil from, from that. So that's a big question, but do you have, have you seen different scenarios on the most effective and maybe less effective ways for leaders to help advance these conversations organically within their companies? Oh, that's a great question. And I think the first thing that I would suggest doing when it comes to these types of difficult conversations and difficult conversations in general is take the time to prepare. That's one of the best things you can do to improve your negotiation outcomes. And if your audience goes to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, they can get access to all of our negotiation guides, which includes sales negotiation guide, business negotiation guide, salary negotiation guide, introvert negotiation guide, <laughs> car negotiation guide, all, all of these different types of guides. It's like 15 plus. But one that really applies to this situation is how to have difficult conversations about race. We've created a guide that walks people through that in a step-by-step -step type of way. And then as it relates to leaders in particular, what they can do is I want you to focus on a, a term called psychological safety. We need to create environments where people feel comfortable having these conversations. We need to create environments where people feel comfortable being vulnerable in general, where they don't feel as though stating something that they believe would lead to uh, political or social reprisal within the organization. I think that's important to have that free flow of dialogue. That's the first thing. And then even if you want to be an advocate or an ally and you say, I believe this is the best way to go, and then you try to force that change without getting the necessary buy-in, you're not going to have the commitment necessary to actually follow it through. And you might be doing more harm than good. And so that's why with the third step of the compassionate curiosity framework, we have joint problem solving. Even if you are 100% sure that you know what the outcome should be or will be, you want the other person to feel as though they were part of the process because then it makes them feel as though when they look at the solution, they can see themselves in it, which makes them more likely to protect it and follow through with it. That's such a fundamental piece uh, of, of the management puzzle here. I just want to highlight that. And, and within these conversations that you're talking about, Kwame, and it's something that I talk about a lot with you're creating messaging and conversations for more mundane sorts of activities, selling activities and, and the like. It's so important if you have people in mind who may be on your sales team, your delivery team, your distribution partners, your friends in the community that you want to help carry your message, you should involve them or certainly people like them in the creation of the message itself which makes the message more clear and relevant and real. And it also builds more uh, cred. It builds more momentum within the organization when this stuff comes out. If it, if it just seems to be something that the consultant came up with or a third party came up with, people won't internalize it. They won't believe it because it really isn't about them. And so I think that point, Kwame, is, is really important. There's a process to go through 
with all of the social unrest, with economic distress, we also aren't able to be truly in person to nearly the same degree as we, we were a few months ago and may not be able to do that for a few months more. It would seem that a lot of these types of negotiations and conversations, because they are about our identity, they are so personal and intimate that they work best if we're in the same space. So what are the difficulties for trying to have these in a more Zoom virtual conversation world and ways perhaps that you've seen some people be able to get around those limitations? Yeah, this is a really tough one because you're spot on. This uh, new digital world that we find ourselves in, it's making it more difficult to connect, truly connect in these in these conversations, just in general, but especially in these conversations. And I think one thing that's helpful is you want to have as many data points as possible because it's easy to, for example, misinterpret a text. So not just text in terms of a text message, but the written word, because you can read any kind of tone into that word, right? Uh, when, you, when you're just reading it. And so if we have a, uh, if we're communicating via voice, like we are for this podcast, now we've had, we add another dimension. If we add video, now it's another dimension and it becomes easier to read the person's body language. Not perfect. We're still missing a lot of context, but it's better. And I think just that added personal contact to that level of personality or personal touch will help you to create that connection and, and work through some of those challenges because they can see your face. They can see that you're not uh, trying to be as threatening and it helps you to convey your message in a, in a deeper, more um, personal type of way. So I think that's going to be important. And then also, before we jump into really difficult conversations, I think it's more important now than ever to take some time and build some rapport. And my thing is before business types of conversations, I would try to take about five minutes to, to have some uh, pleasantries and whatnot. But I would try to go seven minutes, 10 minutes or something like that just to make sure that I'm creating a level of connectivity so that I'm getting a little bit of grace, some padding, some margin. So when difficulties arise in the conversation, I have a little bit of a deposit made in the relationship bank account where if I need to make withdrawals, I can make withdrawals. But I think it is, we need to be more intentional about building that rapport before we just dive into these difficult conversations on video chat. I was going to ask you as well in, in that sense, which are all uh, the things you mentioned all make a lot of sense. The uh, marketing folks and sales folks would go, yes, you're talking about a multi-channel type of approach to, to use the best of whatever medium you can going toward the more intimate and toward building rapport. I think this is a nice bridge into a recent experience that you had, Kwame, which uh, I think was also telling about how important these conversations are right now. You can give us a little bit of a background, but you had a, a virtual town hall, I guess about two months before the conversation that we're having today. And as I described a little bit in the intro, and as you have spoken about it, you said, I'm going to do this as a service. I'm doing lots of things through the Institute, my podcast, and my, my teaching and my coaching. We'll open this up as a forum and from what I understand, Kwame, a lot more people showed up than you would have thought. A lot of people showed up after the fact that wanted the recording and something that you thought might be less than an hour you know, lasted. Uh, I'm not even sure how long. 
if you could set that up for us a little bit, talk about why you established that. And then I'm really curious to hear the kinds of questions that you got. What is it, as we, if you had described to me when we were speaking earlier about ripping the Band-Aid off, what are the things that people in that sort of setting want to express and what do they want to know about? Yeah, this was a really interesting experience because, again, the the unifying principle for everything that we do with the American Negotiation Institute is the belief that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So we feel that it is our calling to help to, to make these difficult conversations easier so people can live their best life. And it was very clear that at the time, the most difficult conversations that we were having in the country were about race, racism, justice, and those type of things. And so I said, all right, well, this isn't my core competency anymore. I did civil rights in the past. I'm, I'm rusty, but I'm fresh with the negotiation and conflict resolution. I'll, I'll create a little program and, and see how people respond for the, for the handful of people who are interested. They could jump on and, and get this for free. And I made the promise, I'll stay as long as you need me to. I'll do a short presentation and then I'll stay as long as you need, as long as the questions keep coming. I did not know what I was setting myself up for, Jim. The questions would keep on coming. <laughs> and so I, I, I marketed this very lightly. So on Wednesday, I said, hey, I sent out an email to my list, and then I made a couple of posts on LinkedIn, and I expected about 40 to 50 people to show up. And then we had over 1,000 people register from all around the world. And I was saying to myself, what has this become? This is insane. It's, it's crazy. I presented for about 30 or 40 minutes, and then the Q&A took the entire event to well over three hours. It was uh, incredible, an incredible experience. What kinds of things were people asking? And, and as part of that, any surprises for you? You've seen a lot of things, and you've been involved in a lot of difficult conversations and negotiations. What reaction were you getting from that group in that moment? First, I was really excited because we had a, an incredible amount of people on this webinar on a very tough topic. And I was just impressed with how helpful and positive and optimistic everybody was in the chat. It's easy on sensitive topics to, to get a few trolls in there who want to just sow seeds of contention, but not, not one not one issue it, that was that was really great to see and that showed that showed me that everybody there was there for a specific reason they want to make the world a better place they want to have these conversations and they they recognize the need to be that leader and that advocate to have the conversations but people often avoid the conversations because they focus so much on the threat that they don't see the opportunity on the other side. And one of the things we always say is that conflict is an opportunity. We just need to take the time to find what that opportunity is. Recognizing that people were so ready to take action and learn about this was incredibly inspiring. And then for me, the thing that was most refreshing was that it felt really familiar. And what I mean by familiar is that the problems and, and situations that they were bringing up, they could be solved by the fundamentals of negotiation and conflict resolution. There was nothing that special about what I was doing in, in my mind because it was so familiar to me in terms of the fundamental principles. And so since then, 
a number of companies have reached out. And actually, at this point, it's probably about half of our business is uh, comprised of diversity and inclusion style trainings on how to have difficult conversations about race and what they can do internally within their companies to persuade leaders to to make changes that create more equitable workspaces. So it's it's been a really fun transition and it's it's fun to help people in these new ways too. That is encouraging to hear about. And along those lines of, of leaders and companies trying to figure out how they should best navigate these waters, a couple of things come to mind. And then, Kwame, we have a very tough conversation we have to have at, at the end of here before I, I let you go. And I think you know where this is going. But before <laughs> that, I've had some conversations with friends of mine who are, who are in businesses, one of which I've heard that uh, there was one one friend who is a Latino and another who is Asian American. They're in different organizations, but they expressed to me in in a little bit of a way that we're having conversations about race, but they don't know that their races are part of the conversation right now. So and we going forward inside our organization and how we're talking inside and how we're talking to the outside world, how broad should this conversation be? I think it can be, it, it can and should be extremely broad because here's the thing, when we try to keep it incredibly narrow, it allows us to, to kind of absolve ourselves of responsibility. Because if we say, all right, this is a criminal justice issue, what the police are doing, uh, that's problematic. We want to make sure that there's justice, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you think about it from that perspective, I don't have any real connections to the police. I have a lot of friends who are in the police department, but me, I don't have any pull there. What I could do, I guess, is vote, but that's about it. And if I limit my perspective to just that, then I'm really not doing too much. But if you recognize, well, you know what? This whole situation has made me a little bit more aware of issues of diversity, inclusion, equity in society in general. This is an opportunity for us to engage in a little bit of self-reflection as a country to recognize what we still need to do in order to create the equitable society we, we want to create. And so what I challenge people to do is think about the change in terms of three main domains, work, home, and your community. So what can I do at work? What issues do I see at work that relate to diversity and inclusion, racial equity, those type of things? What are the potential imbalances that I see? What can I do to improve that situation? What are the challenges that, that I see within my community? What can I do to improve the situation? And then same at, at home. Sometimes we have family members who engage in problematic dialogue. What can I do to be an ally or an advocate in those types of situations as well? And once you recognize it and, and bring it closer to home in that regard, looking at it in those three main domains, it becomes very clear that there is still work that we as individuals can do within our local communities, within our workplaces, within our families to advance the dialogue as it relates to, to race and equity in general. So don't focus too much on, on criminal justice alone and don't focus on one racial group alone. I think it's an opportunity for us to engage in self-examination in general, and then we can move the, the goal of equity forward when we think about it more creatively. Kwame, I scribbled down the phrase problematic dialogue. I'm going to try to keep that in mind when <laughs> there's a family member or friend or someone <laughs> that's saying something that's 
you know, knuckleheaded. I'll just say, okay, let's put that in the category of problematic dialogue and make sure that nothing like that flies out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. One other question along the lines of organizations putting this into practice, affecting their culture and their habits and the way that they operate with one another. Is there a point at which it's it's okay that maybe some people or some groups would say, you know, at some point, I'm just not ever going to have the same perspective that you have. And we'll just count the things that we can agree upon and then try to put aside things that we might disagree upon or just simply don't understand each other. Yes, ish. Uh, this, I know I'm going to sound very lawyerly That's here. A technical term here as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it really depends on the issue, and um, so for example, I was having a I was in a very uh, heated group chat via text message, and there were people who uh, it was so funny they agreed on ninety percent of what they were talking about, but it was just this 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 little ten percent five percent sliver that it it went on for about four days. <laughs> This group text kind of just went out of control on this narrow five to ten percent, and I, I just told them, and I guess this is the mediator in me. I said, "Listen, here's the thing: we have somebody who is an ally. He is an ally. He agrees <laughs> with the main things. Yes, structural racism exists. Yes, we need to make some changes. He has some problems with some semantic issues and so, some other types of things, but those are on the periphery. The core is is in line. That's really what matters, right? And in as long as we're folk, we're we're agreeing on the big things, I think a lot of times we pull ourselves out out of focus by focusing so ne- focusing so strongly on things that don't really matter as much. And so we have to think about what it is that we're trying to accomplish. What's our goal? What's our ultimate goal? And recognizing that it allows us to focus on what matters and let go of what doesn't. But in certain circumstances, we might have a, a real issue that we're dealing with within the company, but somebody's an, an obstacle and we might disagree. But the thing is, when it comes to the status quo, all the status quo needs in order to maintain its position is nothing. And so if we say, all right, I'm going to lay down my arms and not proceed anymore. And they say, okay, I'm going to lay down my arms and not proceed anymore. Then the status quo wins, <laughs> then nothing yes. changes. And, yes. and, and so we can't let that happen. And so then in those situations, I can I would say you, you need to get a little bit more creative. Uh, you need to be persistent. You need to keep on trying. But at the same time, you have to recognize that sometimes you need to find other ways to, to meet your needs in these conversations too. So ultimately, it depends on the situation, depends on the topic. But I, I think I, I would encourage people to continue to be persistent before giving up on, on somebody. But again, if it's something that's tangential, just just let it go and focus on the big things. Yeah. Frame the the opponent as the status quo itself and then maybe get creative about how to how to get past it. Okay, it's it's time for the the, the one issue that we that people are really afraid to talk about. But we're going to do that here. And it's about serial choice. You uh, established in your TEDx talk and we'll link to that and the other the other resources that you mentioned earlier in our show description, of course, but uh, you framed it really nicely about negotiation and and difficult conversations and the fact that, and here, Kwame, you and I can agree, cereal is an underrated snack and meal supplement, or sometimes a meal on its own outside of, of the morning. But cinnamon toast crunch, really? 
Uh, whoa, I would like to I would like to take a moment and hearken back to the word compassionate and not sounding like a jerk <laughs> because Jim I'm being provocative here in the moment. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, please defend your position here. No, you don't have to defend your position at all. But it was a, a charming and enlightening story. But at least you can tell us as I try to acknowledge and validate. Where did your affinity for Cinnamon Toast Crunch originate? Oh, man. I remember summers. Just I, I, I remember very clearly summers where I was clearly growing through a, going through a growth spurt and uh, getting a mixing bowl and filling that mixing bowl up with Cinnamon Toast Crunch and just sitting oh, down wow. eating all of that. And uh, I just can't let it go. That's, that's the one sugary cereal that... I need to have regularly. So for instance, Lucky Charms or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I can have that maybe twice a year and that's sufficient, but really Cinnamon Toast Crunch at this point is a pathology that I have no intention of getting rid of. And the only challenge I have with it is just sharing. I, I buy I buy it and my, my wife really thinks that I bought it to share and I really don't. Uh, but- <laughs> <laughs> well, you left an open story loop. I uh, will say in your TEDx talk, you, you, uh, which uh, listeners, it was about how uh, Kwame's wife, Whitney, who seems to be a pretty uh, sharp cookie herself, took the last of your cinnamon toast crunch. And so how you resolved that, did you go, did you just, how did that end exactly? How did you negotiate the way that there was enough inventory in the pantry so that you could satisfy those cravings whenever they occur? Well, that's a a great question. I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that, Jim, because uh, (laughs) I I, I, I tell you, it, it happens very frequently. I come home and there are like seven squares left in the bag. And I say, first of all, it's very cruel to leave this in, in the pantry to make me feel as though it's still there. That's the second oh, thing. Oh, you've labeled, you've labeled something there. That's, that's tough. <laughs> you call her cruel. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And I said, I, I, did, I dedicated an entire TED Talk to this. And it's 2020. We're three years later. And you're still doing this. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Okay, I, I would I would suggest that somewhere in your institute that you're, there's probably a, a drawer, there's probably a, a closet, there's something where you could just have your emergency box available to you. So just a thought, just I, a thought. Always the thought that I've had, and I tell people, you, you'll know when I've made it when I have my own pantry <laughs> with, with a lock on it, and everything will be secure. Well, I'm glad we got the really important issues out in the open. We've been building toward that one through our whole conversation. And if there's any way we can, we can help you in, in those, those conversations, Kwame, I hope you'll let me know. This has been terrific. I really appreciate your time in all of this. You're, you're generous in terms of your resources and your guidance uh, to all of us. Can you take a moment and review for us where our listeners can keep up with you, the Institute, your books, your podcast, uh, which is terrific, all of those things. And we'll have those links, but I want to make sure that we're all aware of where we can get those guides for different types of conversations and negotiations, as you spoke about earlier. 
Perfect. Yeah. So make sure to download those guides, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide. You can get access to all of those and connect with me on LinkedIn. I give a, a personal response to everybody who connects with me on LinkedIn. And um, I'm, I'm pretty active on, on that platform. But of course, the podcast is called Negotiate Anything. Uh, the book is called Finding Confidence in Conflict. And so is the TED Talk. And yeah, I'd love to, to hear from you and connect. Wonderful. Kwame, really an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Hey, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you for joining us on the Manage Your Message Podcast, the place you can find ideas for honing your message, growing your base of messengers, and growing your business. This is a side project, one I have invested in because, well, I believe in the power of conversations to help great businesses rise above the noise, and earn more trust. And I know listeners are finding value in it. They tell me, and I'd love to hear from you. My request of you is that you will share your five-star rating and review and subscribe so that you don't miss a thing and so that other professionals can find us as well. You can dig in more deeply to these ideas by reading or listening to my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it wherever business books are sold, and you can even check out a free sampler on my website, jimcar.com. I would welcome a connection with you on LinkedIn. You can also email me directly at jim at jimcar.com, and my direct mobile number is also on the website. Let's talk. And if you recognize the importance of your everyday business message and the need to adapt to this very new environment, then let's examine some options. I have several message leadership and growth programs, which I deliver virtually and in person, and tailor to your business's needs so that you and everyone around the business can likewise be comfortable and effective in their customer conversations in all of the ways that those conversations are happening now. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often. <laughs>